Ayanna Thompson is a professor of English at Arizona State University, a self-proclaimed Othello whisperer, and the creator of Race Before Race, an ongoing conference series and professional network community by and for scholars of color working on issues of race in pre-modern literature, history, and culture. She is the author and editor of numerous books on Shakespeare, including the revised edition of the Arden Third series Othello, which we discuss in this episode. Using her own experience teaching, researching, and working with Black performers, Ayana gives a compelling analysis of Othello and Shakespeare through the lens of race and the history of minstrelsy in theater production to inform the discussion. It's important to mention that we recorded this episode before George Floyd, an unarmed 46-year-old Black man, was killed by police during an arrest in Minneapolis, Minnesota. His murder and those of Breonna Taylor, Tony McDade, Nina Pop, Ahmad Arbery, and many not named here, renewed public attention on the work of Black organizers and the Black Lives Matter movement. This work has inspired uprisings across the USA and around the world to combat police brutality and centuries of systemic racism and show no signs of slowing down. With that context in mind, take a listen. Welcome to the Bloomsbury Academic Podcast. I'm your host, Rebecca Morofsky, and today I'm speaking with Ayanna Thompson, the editor for Othello in our Art and Shakespeare series. Uh, thanks so much for being on the show. Oh, it's a pleasure. I wanted to talk a little bit about your background and how you came to study Shakespeare, and especially through the lens of race. Well, I did not start out as a Shakespeare scholar, and in fact, um, I've been fairly public in the past few years that I've not trained as a Shakespeare scholar at all. Um, I went to, I was admitted to graduate school as a modernist because I had worked with Edward Said as an undergrad. And so I was fully uh, steeped in post-colonial theory and African-American studies. So I, when I got to graduate school, I took you know, kind of generalist classes and areas that I felt like I was deficient in and, and did not specialize at all in terms of my coursework. But all the questions that I wanted to ask and answer about racial formation, I realized were happening in earlier time periods than in the post-colonial one that I was, you know, imagined that I was going to specialize in. And so even after my exams, I declared to the Renaissance scholars in my program that I was going to be a Renaissance scholar, but <laughs> they had never taught me. They'd never seen my writing. So they all were like, uh, okay, but no. Right. <laughs> so, you know, I had to do a lot of um, reading and, uh, and learning on my own. They were very good at like kind of giving me extensive bibliographies that, that were kind of jaw dropping in length. But um, I think they all expected that I, I probably wouldn't, um, finish or succeed. And it just really, again, being very lucky, I wrote a dissertation on restoration trauma. And at the time when I finished my degree, there were lots and lots of jobs, um, unlike now. And so I was hired as a Shakespearean. In fact, I think I got five job offers um, that year. And they were all as a Shakespearean. And I was like, oh, okay, I guess I'm a Shakespearean. <laughs> so, so 
I am a total fraud. I have been very public about this recently. So <laughs> even, even when I became the president of the Shakespeare Association of America, I had to say to people, okay, just remember that I'm a fraud. <laughs> <laughs> well, I wouldn't say fraud. You're just not a purist, but that's probably a better thing. I mean, do you like, okay, so your background's in post-colonial theory. Uh, do, you, do you bring that sort of lens to your research in, um, in, on Shakespeare? Absolutely. I think, I mean, I, I actually think it was an unmitigated gift that I wasn't a specialist in Shakespeare because the questions that I wanted to ask about racial formation, about performing race, about the way that race changes in performances throughout history, those were just not questions that people trained in early modern studies um, were trained to ask. And so with my deep background in post-colonial and African-American studies, and, you know, kind of in the beginning of critical race theory, that just opened up new theoretical um, angles for my approach to Shakespeare that I thought were incredibly rich and productive. Now, I will say at the beginning of my career, when I was, a, a you know, an early career scholar, I met with a lot of resistance. People kept claiming that you know, the questions I was asking were anachronistic, um, that um, race didn't mean the same thing then that it means now, um, that I was kind of forcing a, a more contemporary lens onto early literature and history and culture. Uh, but I just kept plugging at it. And one of the ways that I think helped open up the field was that I turned, you know, into a performance uh, scholar and so I could say, okay, well, now I'm talking about race now and performances of Shakespeare now, and then try and like work my way back <laughs> to the connections. And that helped be ease people in, I think, a little bit. Um, but yeah, so I do think that my training or non-training um, in Shakespeare studies, at least, did end up being ultimately incredibly beneficial. I think it's really funny that people are saying that you're, um, you know, your ideas of race formations through Othello especially are anachronistic. That seems a little myopic to me. But, um, <laughs> well, it just tells you something about the time period, right? Then um, that it's just it just people were asking different questions, and I, I, you know, the dominant way of talking about Othello in the eighties and nineties was about jealousy. <laughs> and really? of course, with my training, I'm like. Yeah, jealousy is in there, but it's a it's mixed in with all this other stuff, right? That has to do with race um, and sexuality. Uh, yeah, yeah. Which is a nice segue. I mean, how did so? How did you come to edit um, a fellow for the Arden series? You know, especially as the as the first woman to edit the series. Yeah, and uh, I think the first black scholar in the series too. So um, <clears throat> I felt. When I was asked, I was like, I hate this play. <laughs> I was like, why do you think I'd be good at this? And I have to say that Margaret Bartley had talked to um, Ginger Vaughn, who is a great scholar, who is one of the kind of pioneers in thinking about um, race and performance. And Ginger had said to Margaret Bartley that she thought that I, would, I was ready and that I was ready to do the kind of next wave of, of research on Othello, but I found it incredibly daunting. And uh, 
you know, I, I procrastinated a long time. And it was like the most perfect prompt for me, which was like, you know, this, you know, what needs to be said, just do it, just sit down and do it. And don't be afraid of it. I mean, the Arden series has so much um, weight and heft and uh, kind of this long tradition of, of being the best scholars doing the most in-depth research that it, I found it really intimidating. But once I thought, right, if I'm going to write to, if I imagine my college students or college students and, and my colleagues throughout the world, here's what I'd want them to know. And so that ended up being my approach to, to doing Othello. And what were some of the reoccurring themes in, in Othello that you wanted to to focus on? Yeah, I wanted, um, and, I, and I hope this comes through in the introduction, but I wanted to say that, you know, Othello is a different play depending on where you are in history, right? So even if every word is exactly the same, um, a, a Nazi in Germany in the 1930s or a pro-slavery um, activist in the American South in the 19 or 1850s or uh, a South African fighting for apartheid in the 1980s like John Connie they all have a different play because everything around race and sexuality and the relationship between men in a military situation changes and so there are some through lines that you can trace from the you know, 17th century to the 21st century, but there's also ways in which it's a different play with each new era. And so I wanted to have that come across and also as a way of thinking about, right, okay, if if more means something in the 17th century, we know in, when it comes time to the 19th century performances that there was a firm sense that they were reinventing what more meant, right? So we we know from kind of ar- archival evidence that Othello was probably a, a black character on the Renaissance stage. But by the 19th century, they're like, no, it's not possible that this good, you know, just Desdemona would love a black man. So he must be like very light skinned. <laughs> He must be funny. (laughs) So I don't know who invented this term, and I looked really hard, but it's called the Great Bronze Age, right? (laughs) So we have this Great Bronze Age of Othello's in the 19th century. And and so that's a different play, right? Then I think you you have a different play, even though the words are exactly the same. So I just think that was what I really wanted to to have come across um, and to have people realize the kind of, an intersectional lens is always needed for this play. You need to attend to the way that masculinity and race and femininity and race and homosocial bonds and class are always in interplay, but they'll be an interplay in different ways in different time periods. That's fascinating. And it's so true, of course. I mean, it makes so much sense that people, depending on what historical social context they're living in, would use the play for their, to serve the political agenda that they want. Um, but, you know, obviously through the course of Othello's history, there's been some kind of ambiguity about um, Othello's or, yeah, Othello's racial identity. Can you discuss a little bit the the history of minstrelsy in Shakespeare plays? Um 
Could you give some context in terms of blackface in the Elizabethan era, but also how Shakespeare plays have historically been been performed in the U.S.? Yeah, and I think I think your implicit question is about the development of minstrelsy, right? So we know that um, right. We know in the early modern era that there were characters who um, were performed with the aid of racial prosthetics. And this is a term that uh, Ian Smith uh, uses. And that is a mixture of paint, makeup, visors, wigs, um, leggings, arm coverings, um, gloves. Um, And so we know that there was an interest in performing racial difference on the early modern stage. Those same plays get imported throughout the world during the kind of you know, British Empire. And so on the early American stage, we have performances of all of you know, many of Shakespeare's plays. In fact, I've been doing research on um, New York theaters between 1822 and 1833, which is um, 32 is like the big birth of, of minstrelsy, but so just kind of a little bit past that as well. So in this like 11 year period, 25 different Shakespeare plays were put on in New York, 25 of the 38. That's like a huge percentage. Um, But so we see that, and these are put on not only in the the high theaters, like the kind of fancy theaters, but also at the circus and at more working class entertainment venues. And it's interesting because you can see the circulation of the actors between these Shakespeare roles and then the early performances of what we would come to call as um, Negro spirituals or like kind of the first minstrel songs. And then also um, the actual um, minstrel performances. So while I think scholars, Shakespeare scholars have been somewhat reluctant to draw a line between blackface performances in Shakespeare and American minstrelsy, there is a strange circulation among the performers who then create these early minstrel performances. So I just think that it's probably more akin than we'd like to admit. Um, And it's more complicated than we'd like to admit as well. Um, So yes, I do do see a pretty clear relationship. Were there, during the Elizabethan era, I mean, obviously it's hard to say what Shakespeare was thinking because we don't really know much about him as a person, but what were, what, what do you know, if anything, about what life was like for Black people in England during Shakespeare's time? And how did English perceptions of Blackness appear in Shakespeare's plays at large, but, you know, specifically in Othello? And and were they practicing some form of blackface? So we know from um, the late, great Imtiaz Habib, who just passed uh, last year, um, he has this amazing book called Black Lives in the English Archives, in which he really went to through all the archival materials to say there was a much larger Black presence in London, and particularly around the theater area, than had ever been acknowledged before. So while it was pretty common in 
old editions of Shakespeare's plays to say Shakespeare would never have encountered a Jew or a Black. <laughs> I mean, that's like a common statement that was made. Um, now, I think that statement is pretty hard to say with any certainty because the presence is just much larger. And Elizabethans and Jacobeans <clears throat> show their interest in racial difference in every kind of cultural production that they have, whether it's sermons or plays or um, poetry. There is a fascination with the difference between black and white and whether it's a spiritual thing or um, a humoral thing or um, a, a, a factor of geography or a factor of, of, of uh, kind of the way you're living your life, whether you're closer to the sun or not. So there's lots and lots of theories about racial difference that are circulating at the time. Um, and I think you definitely see an emergence of, of um, you know, what um, the Field sisters, Karen and Barbara Fields called racecraft, which is the kind of thoughts that lead to racist inequalities, which they argue is the way you create race. Because if you acknowledge that race isn't an actual genetic thing, right, it, it's not, um, right. then what is it? And so it's the way that you create inequalities based on your perception uh, and at structural inequalities based on your perception of these differences. And so I think you definitely see that emerging in um, Shakespeare's time period. And in Othello, I think what is fascinating is that you get this kind of tension between him describing himself as being of high birth and of nobility and of having like a really great moral character. My titles, um, my, oh, I'm going to get the line wrong, but <laughs> something about like titles <laughs> and, and perfect parts, right? Like he thinks that he is a, a, an equal to Desdemona. So he presents himself that way. And the Venetian state clearly needs him as a general in their army. But then we get all of this kind of racist discourse, and not just from Iago and Brabantio, but throughout the text, and also from Othello himself, that seems to who seems to internalize the idea that there is an actual inequality between white and black. So definitely you see all of like, you know, kind of the fascination with difference, what it means, like what is the significance of this of these differences? You see that that's happening in Shakespeare's lifetime being played out precisely in Othello. And in the 21st century, in, in people's depiction of this in, in different in various kinds of performances, obviously not that these things are the same at all, um, but people in the 21st century do all male versions of Shakespeare's plays in the name of authenticity, saying that that's obviously how the Shakespeare plays would have been performed in his time. Are, are similar claims being made about minstrel shows or blackface in Othello in, in 21st century? Have you ever encountered a performance that was attempting it? And, and do you personally feel like it's ever ever justified? So, um, well, what's interesting is that Ginger Vaughn, who suggested that I <laughs> edit Othello, 
she had written a book called Performing Blackness on English Stages, in which she does have a thought experiment about, we know that Black actors have a hard time playing Othello because this is the role is designed to be an impersonation of Black masculinity, not an actual Black man, right? <clears throat> it's designed for, for an actor, we think Richard Burbage, to play in Blackface, which is different than writing a character for a Black person to play. And so she says, you know, a lot of the trouble that Black actors have with this role and the kind of history of racism behind it, maybe it would be solved if we could go back and see um, what it was like to actually employ the racial prosthetics. And I wrote a review of her book saying, that's interesting, but actually let's think through all of the implications here. And then Subsequently, I wrote a much lar larger article and then a chapter in a book where I say, let's, let's follow this, this logic all the way. And I get into the tension between, if you're assuming that there is an intention here, that does not, which would be Shakespeare's interested in exploring this performance process, that's different than controlling the reception. And the history of minstrelsy in between the writing of Othello and 21st century performances of them have irrevocably altered the way that people will react to minstrelsy. And um, so I think, I think it's hard. I think, you know, I, I'd probably go see a production like that just because I'm interested, but I don't know that it would be I don't, I don't know that I'd want my children to see it. Like, would I take my 10-year-old daughter to see that? I don't know. So I, I do think it's something that people occasionally, like every 10 years or so, someone pops back up with this idea as if it's the first time that the idea has been had. And, um, and it, it does take like working through all of, all of the implications once again. Right. Completely. Like it, it just, it's obviously such a historically socially loaded thing that I just, I don't know, not that it's really my place to say, but like, it just seems like it's impossible to really divorce one from the other, even if you want to transport yourself to Elizabethan England for three hours, you know? Yeah. You're still going to be a 21st century person who knows about the history and the culture <laughs> from the intervening 400 years, <laughs> you know, and I, and I will say that I, I end up getting called in to help actors who are black actors who are playing Othello um, because they almost all have a similar trajectory of being really excited to play this major, major part, a part that even from the, from the time they were, training in in actor training programs that this was going to be the part for the, the classical part that they were aiming towards uh, so there's excitement and then once the production starts there's usually a lot of um, trauma that's experienced because the structure of the play is more closely aligned to a comedy than to Shakespeare's other tragedies. 
So Iago, who's the villain of the play, speaks directly to the audience. The audience knows more than our titular lead, Othello. And that power imbalance between the audience knowing more and the, the lead character knowing less, that's a comic structure. And then you add in the kind of May-December marriage, that's a comic structure, you know, we know it from Chaucer. Um, the fact that she eloped away from her father who's trying to control her. Again, this is all, all the, Shakespeare's, many of Shakespeare's comedies are precisely about this. The, the heroines run off to the woods and put on some breeches and, you know, <laughs> marry the person that their father didn't want them. That's a comedy. So what ends up happening is the black actors enter into what they think is a big tragedy about their char character, Othello, who they're trying to craft as usually as a very strong um, kind of character with integrity, who then falls to the machinations of this evil villain. But what they get in performance quite frequently is an audience who is by and large white, because that is the theater scene in the US and the UK and Canada. And many times on Iago's side, laughing when he tells them he's plotting and scheming against Othello, laughing when he dupes Othello. And this, can, this often triggers a kind of like deep racial anxiety on the parts of the actors. So I get called in quite frequently to talk to the actors and I have to say to them, what you're experiencing is not unique to you. This is part of the structure of the play. This is part of what's built into the structure for a play that was written for a white man to perform in racial prosthetics. So, you know, yes, this is, this is hard. And what you're experiencing is not, you're not having like a mind trip because <laughs> they, they often right. think of it as being like, like what's wrong with me that I am so anxious all the time. And the other thing that ends up happening is that a lot of times, because Iago's part is longer uh, than Othello's, that the directors, who are almost always white, end up having to spend more time with the Iago, which then to the Black actor can look as if the director and this racist villain are plotting against him. And so that it brings up just a lot of, and you know, Actors are like, you know, they're kind of emotionally available people. And so this is kind of like, yeah, this kind of anxiety about their place and who's on their side and feeling isolated and alone takes them by surprise. And so I have to work with them to get them to realize that it's not about them and, and to give them some, you know, kind of techniques to cope uh, through the run. I mean, that seems like such a false choice, right? Between this play that was clearly designed, as you said, for a white person to put on blackface, to put on racial prosthetics, or or it's for, you know, a black actor to some, you know, to be traumatized by the entire experience <laughs> of playing this character. Yes. That's horrible. I mean, do you do you feel <laughs> like once in your in your experience, do the actors that are actually playing Othello, do they come out of it having a different relationship with the character? Do they never want to touch Shakespeare again? I mean, how do we, and also, I guess, um, attached to that question, 
if it is so traumatizing for black actors often to play this character, I mean, like, how do we, how do we deal with putting on this show in the future? Well, I'm on record saying that I think we should probably have a little hiatus from the three toxic plays, (laughs) the Merchant of Venice and Taming of the Shrew. I just think that they kind of resist recuperation and Mm -hmm. end up kind of reinscribing racism, sexism, and anti-Semitism. And so I'd love for us to have, and that doesn't mean, I think we should teach these plays. I think we should read them. I think we should, you know, analyze them. We should do research on them. I personally just am not interested in seeing those productions for a little, a little while. But another thing we can do for, for actors of color is, is to get out of this, you know, this false history that they are working or training their whole careers to play Othello. I think that we should be training them to be Hamlet or Romeo or Macbeth or King Lear, or, you know, like they should have a different training aspiration or have the same one that white actors have. And that really would mean like opening up, I mean, I think that the casting practices in the US and the UK, although it looks as if it's much more inclusive, the numbers remain pretty flat. Uh, Jamie Rogers did some fantastic research on the the number of of actors of color in UK productions. And it basically ranges pretty consistently around 10 to 12%. (laughs) So like, you know, like it's, it's pretty low. So over the past 20 years, has there been any uh, kind of? No, no, this is longer, much longer history. I think she was looking from the 1950s on to now. It's flat, even though it looks, and the reason it looks different is that you'll get one or two productions a season that are all actors of color. And so that throws the, the numbers that makes us think that we're seeing, <laughs> seeing people of color everywhere. But in fact, you know, and not in the major roles, definitely. Or there's one or two actors, like star actors who get to do that. But like, for the most part, we're not creating, we're not allowing actors to build up their performance resume to get into these larger, um, you know, meteor roles that require a lot of training. Like to be able to be Macbeth, who's, you know, on stage talking like the whole time, like Hamlet too, you have Mm. to have done smaller and medium roles pretty regularly so that you can get your chops into, into, you know, shape to do those roles. Like you can't just be like plunked into you're you're destined to fail. And I've seen, in fact, a few unbelievable failures with gorgeous actors of color, but they didn't have the, they didn't have the kind of resume building that allowed them to be successful in those roles. So I just think that the way that we treat white actors and, and actors of color is still incredibly different. And this kind of causes failure and also leaves Othello to be the role that people aspire to. Right. And in that case, it just becomes tokenism. (laughs) Yes, exactly. Exactly. It's interesting that you bring up um, Merchant of Venice and Taming of the Shrew as well. I was thinking about it when you were first talking about actors being traumatized by, you know, people essentially laughing at their English 
Interestingly enough, there was one adaptation I saw of Merchant of Venice that was told through the, like, uh, the adaptation had two people who were clearly in um, a concentration camp during the Holocaust putting on the show for a Nazi. And like that, that adaptation of Merchant of Venice was quite interesting. Mm -hmm. No, I love, I love all, like, I love adaptations. I love, you know, changing the mise-en-scene completely. Um, I've seen various different kinds of merchants. Uh, that one sounds quite powerful because I think it's giving you a frame that makes sense for why this would be for a character, again, that was written for an English Christian to perform with racial prosthetics, Shylock, right? <laughs> um, to have that make sense to for a Nazi audience, I think you know that opens up the the text in new and exciting ways. I haven't seen a production of Othello that does that same kind of like, you know, maybe if we imagine that it's put on for, you know, a pl plantation owner, that might be interesting. But I don't know. <laughs> and for Shrew, I don't know. Yeah. Like, <laughs> but you know, you you really do have to work quite hard to allow the Jewish actor or the actor of color or a feminist to play a role in a, in a self-empowering way that also reveals that this is a, a Renaissance construction that was not necessarily enlightened. Right. And we shouldn't have to twist and contort our bodies to make space for ourselves to be in theater or in any other kind of space. Um, well, that would be something, goal, right? <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, one could only hope. <laughs> but um, something else that you've mentioned a little bit or touched upon a little bit is that, you know, Othello is obviously just as much a play about gender as it is about race. Mm -hmm. How do Black masculinities and femininities inform one another in Shakespeare plays and specifically Othello for you? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think it's, you know, Desdemona is not an easy role to play either because, um, and recent, the recent Vogue has been to hire actresses right out of drama school. So that the actress will be like 22, 23, 24. And the Othellos, of course, because, you know, you're, again, you're having to build up your ability to, to perform this role are going to be older and usually 20 plus years older. And I think for me, this is a mistake <laughs> because the play present, presents us with a character, Desdemona, who's incredibly strong. She runs away from her father. She elopes. She marries a black man. And then she goes to war with him. Like she goes to Cyprus because she wants to be in the battle with him. Like this is a strong, strong woman. And we also know that she's turned down multiple other engagements, right? Like people have proposed to her and she's turned them down. She's been waiting for something different. And Othello is, is it. That's what she was waiting for. So I would love to see a production where we get an older Desdemona, <clears throat> who's clearly seasoned and making an informed choice. I don't think we often get that. What we usually get is someone who's presented as being very, very innocent, and maybe someone who doesn't understand the implications of her choice. Um, but I do think that like, if you had an older, stronger actress, that that, that dynamic could come through. 
just people just kind of gloss over all these things that Desdemona has done as if she's just this kind of like, you know, Othello's the first guy aside from her father that she's seen, like, you know, from the Tempest or something. This is not the case. (laughs) Like she's, you know, she's a Venetian noble's daughter and she's had, she's been proposed to multiple times and turned them all down. And here she is, she's excited by this guy and then she runs away and then she goes to war with him. Crazy. That's, that's some strength. And I think that the, that that vision of that kind of strength for a woman is something again that um, Shakespeare explores a lot in his comedies, um, where we get these women who are like, "I'm going to break away. I'm going to I'm going to make my own choices. I don't want the choices that my parents make for me." Um, and this one seems to be in that that realm, but of course she's again like a fellow caught in the wrong genre. <laughs> Right. That's, what's, that's what the bait and switch we get is amazing. I mean, that's like some structural mastery. I mean, this is like a masterfully written play. Hmm. Do you have a favorite part of the play? I mean, like, I know that you want to, and, and I agree with you to, you know, to put a bit of a moratorium on these plays until we can make space for actors of color and, you know, Jewish actors and feminist actors to play certain you know, play the roles that white male Christian actors are afforded from, you know, from birth. But do you have like a favorite aspect of the play slash do you have a favorite film adaptation or to, to rephrase that? I mean, how do you feel about the film adaptations that have happened? So I don't, you know, I I don't think I've seen a film that I thought was for me um, fully satisfying in terms of telling the tale and making it interesting and something you'd want to watch. Now I have seen productions. Like I think um, Nicholas Heitner's production at the national starring Adrian Lester and um, Oh my gosh, I'm forgetting the actor's name who played Iago, but a fabulous actor as Iago uh, in 2013, that production, it was hard. Like it was hard to watch and, you know, people were um, squirming at the end, but I felt like that the emotional through line was probably as close to appropriate as I've seen. But in terms of favorite parts of the play, I just think that temptation scene, act three, scene three is, uh, is unbelievably well written and also unbelievably hard to act because this is the scene where Iago has to take Othello from being fully in love and fully trusting his wife to vowing to kill her in one scene. <laughs> and so, so like that's that's like, you know, the writing is so tight because when you read it, you know, if you're just reading it on the page, you can see how it happens. But to perform, right? Because it's about rhetorical strategies and Iago's amazing rhetorical strategies, but to perform it is entirely different. It's so hard. It's so hard to make that believable without having Othello kind of represent a stupid black man. And I think this is where, you know, actors of color struggle, right? Because they're like, I don't want to portray a black man who's a general as a dupe, as someone who can be duped 
in one scene. That's kind of soul destroying to do that. So, so they, I think the Iago actor and the Othello actor have to work really, really closely and have to really trust each other. Um, so Adrian Lester, who, who I've, I've had the good fortune of, of speaking to a bunch of times, he, um, interviewed a bunch of famous actors who had done Othello when he was um, doing his production, preparing for the production in 2013. And he told me an amazing story that James Earl Jones told him. So James Earl Jones, who loves playing Othello, and I think is probably one of the few actors who doesn't have any qualms about it. And I've never really heard him say anything bad about the part or that it might be a challenging part or, you know, potentially soul destroying. Like those, those are not the terms that James Earl Jones employs, but he told Adrian a story that when he was in um, a stage production with Christopher Plummer as Iago, they had, they were touring the country in some like um, different venues, right? So they weren't always in theater. Sometimes they were in like barns or churches or whatever, but you know, unusual spaces. And during the tour, he could see Plummer's Iago becoming broader and broader and more comedic, kind of leaning into the comedy of Iago. And apparently at one performance in a barn, Plummer came backstage and he turned to, turned to James Earl Jones and said, oh, darling, it really is a farce. <laughs> <laughs> So when Adrian told me that, I was like, yes, that captures it. That that's exactly it. So it is a, it's a farce. It's so complicated. Yeah. It's so, it's such a, no matter what vantage point you're approaching it from, it clearly carries all of this really intense baggage to it, no matter, you know, how you're approaching it. And in the 70s or 80s, obviously, people were really dismissing the lens with which you were trying to contextualize this play. Has your experience changed in academic circles now? I mean, how? Oh, yes. <laughs> how are people talking about it in academic circles, including including your students? Yeah, no, I think now. Um, well, I think now people uh, and I should also say like performance studies was not necessarily something that was very strong in Shakespeare scholarship, even though these are plays. Um, mm. And I think performance studies has sort of um, has taken a, a, an important place in the Shakespeare scholar scholarly world. And that those, the lenses that we bring through performance studies really do help um, scholars who maybe scholars of book history or editing or, you know, whatever, some things that don't have anything to do with performance. I think it has helped them understand the kind of palimpsest nature of these plays in performance that like you think you're just picking up a play and you're hoping to be transported to 1601. But in fact, if you're reading it in 2020, you're going to see maybe 2008 with the election of Barack Obama. Maybe you're going to see something from the 19th century with slavery. Maybe you'll remember um, apartheid era South Africa. Maybe, you know, like you're going to have these kind of 
layers of history come through you and through the play. And I think that's something that, um, that has changed in the Shakespeare world now, that people are more comfortable thinking along those lines. And I think that's, that's very healthy. Hmm. Um, we only have time for one more question, but do you, if people are seeing and appreciating those different historic layers of the play, um, do you feel that the conversation surrounding Othello is, is relevant to, you know, a conversation about race politics in uh, the U S and if so, how? I think it was, it's definitely relevant when Obama was elected president the first time. And there was like an amazing production that Peter Sellers did in New York shortly after the election. And I think he was, you know, he was tapping into what is it to have someone that you think of as this great, uh, potentially a great leader who happens to be a black man, but also have a society that is still riddled with racism. And I think that that moment was very, I mean, people hated that production. And I think because they, they wanted it to fit into a neat box and it resisted, it was saying, yeah, you, you've just elected this man and you're still dealing with racism in a multicultural world. <laughs> and yeah. so I think those, that's probably something now with, after the election of, of, Donald Trump. I do think that's something <laughs> that people are more comfortable facing now, right? They're like, oh, right. We are a multicultural world that still ha- harbors immense racism and structural inequalities that, you know, can persist despite all of our, you know, attempts to, to, to rid, rid our society of them. So I think, it, mm. it, you know, it might be interesting to have you know, to revisit Othello now with the, the next election facing us this year, um, you know, does it have something to tell us about what road we're willing to go down and how far we're willing to go? And are we laughing with Iago or are we traumatized like Othello? That's a very uh, thought-provoking note to to end on, but... It's, it's been really incredible uh, having you explain the sort of history of minstrelsy and, and the, evo- the various evolutions that this play has undergone over the past couple of centuries. So I just wanted to thank you again for agreeing to be on the show. Oh, you're so welcome. It was a pleasure talking to you. Mm-hmm.